Hello and welcome to What's the Story Ghost. I'm your host Annette. And I'm Stephen. And I, my husband's been replaced by a robot. And today we are on episode 39. Stephen, have you heard of Penhurst Asylum? <laughs> I've heard of it, yes. Oh, crack on. Crack on. Nothing gives me the heebie-jeebies more than a haunted asylum. But it's only heebie-jeebies. It's not like it scares the living daylights out of me. Because I've never been to one, so it doesn't hit as close to home as a haunted home or cursed seemingly everyday object. However, Penhurst State School and Hospital has infiltrated more of my favourite shows than I care to admit. It has somehow managed to seep into my escapism where my guard is down and my defences are low because my expectations are fictional, carefree and fantasy. Now, I know there has never been a Penhurst in Indiana, so the fact that it popped up in an episode of Stranger Things is fine. It's fine. Okay, it's not fine. The place actually does scare the living daylights out of me, whether I've set foot on the property or not. How infamous does a place have to be for more than one TV show to create a storyline around it? American Horror Story created a whole season around the idea of Penhurst. We'll do the history bits first. In 1903, the Pennsylvania legislator gave the go-ahead for the creation of the Eastern State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. I will bite my tongue on that disgraceful excuse for a name until the discussion part of the podcast, but I just wanted to signpost my anger. A commission was formed to determine where to build a facility to care for feeble-minded and epileptic residents of the state, what the locals refer to as the shame of Pennsylvania. Again, I'm trying really hard here. They discovered 1,146 feeble-minded persons in insane hospitals and 2,627 in almshouses, county care homes, reformatories and prisons who were in immediate need of specialised institutional care. Needless to say, these people were in the wrong facilities to begin with. Construction started in 1903 and on November 23, 1908, patient number one was admitted to the hospital but the entire campus wasn't completed until late 1928. Even in its very early years, the facility was riddled with problems that needed repair. The underground tunnels, for example, yes, I know, another hospital with tunnels. The tunnels that connected the buildings leaked profusely and were often filled with dirty, stagnant puddles. Patients ranged in age from six months old to 70 years old, but for some reason they were all referred to as children. That's not creepy. There were a lot of industry jobs available to residents, including mattress making, shoe repair, farming, laundry, sewing, baking, butchering, painting and working at the store. It really sounded like they had a plan in place that could truly stimulate the minds of those who otherwise would have fallen behind in society or worse still been completely forgotten about. But actually carrying out the duties to look after those who needed care became very difficult very quickly. In 1913, the legislator appointed a commission for the care of the feeble-minded that boldly stated that disabled people were unfit for citizenship and posed a menace to the peace. It was the fear of those that were different that led to a place like Penhurst being created. But still, so far on the surface, it doesn't sound that bad. 
albeit coming across as more of a prison than a hospital putting patients to work and generally considering everyone to be criminals. But what goes on behind closed doors rarely stays a secret forever. Most hospitals suffer from overcrowding in their first decade, but within four years, Penhurst was already overcrowded and under pressure to admit immigrants, orphans and criminals. The hospital was meant to be a place that would care for and treat those with mental and physical disabilities, but somewhere down the line it became a human warehouse filled to capacity with anyone and everyone. More and more patients were admitted, but there were no funds to attract more staff. It didn't take long before the overworked staff started using violence instead of showing compassion. Patients ranged from those with epilepsy, mental illness, physical and developmental disabilities, and a diagnosis of criminal insanity. There was very little separation between those categories, which made it increasingly difficult to maintain any sort of order in the hospital for the nursing staff. In 1916, they increased the capacity of the institution with the construction of cottages. Sounds nice, but these were specifically for female patients to segregate them from the men, in part to prevent pregnancies. Patients that misbehaved were placed in isolation. Some wanted attention so badly that they inflicted injuries on themselves. Patients who tried to bite a staff member or other patients had their teeth removed. One doctor in particular actually enjoyed torturing patients. His name was Dr. Fear. No, really, Dr. Jesse G. Fear. His favourite form of torture was to give a patient the most painful injection available that didn't cause permanent damage. But the doctor was not the only one taking drastic measures to subdue patients. Two male employees murdered a male patient. Charges against the men were dropped since they were likely suffering from PTSD after returning home from World War I. Both began working at the hospital again after the charges were dropped. In 1968, conditions in Penhurst were finally exposed in a five-part television news report anchored by a local correspondent, Bill Baldini. Suffer the Little Children was the name of the series, and let me tell you, it is a hard watch but it did shine a light on the abuse and neglect of the patients that shook the public. The documentary revealed that at the time of airing, the average zoo was spending $7.15 per animal per day, whereas at Penhurst, the average spent per patient per day was $5.90. In 1974, Terry Lee Halderman, a resident at Penhurst, filed a class action lawsuit against Penhurst State School and Hospital. While a resident at Penhurst, Haldeman reportedly suffered about 40 injuries, including cracked teeth, a fractured finger, and a broken jaw. During that trial, the conditions of Penhurst were described and were later undisputed by the Supreme Court. Here's a quote on those conditions. Conditions at Penhurst are not only dangerous, with the residents often physically abused or drugged by staff members, but inadequate. Indeed, the court found that the physical, intellectual and emotional skills of some residents have deteriorated at Penhurst. In 1981, a Time magazine article described the place as having a history of being understaffed, dirty and violent. In 1983, nine employees were indicted on charges ranging from slapping and beating patients, including some in wheelchairs, 
to arranging for other patients to assault each other. But despite Bill Baldini's exposing the wrongdoing, the Time magazine's article describing conditions, and the nine employees being indicted, it wasn't until 1984 when the final settlement of Penhurst v Halderman called for the closure of Penhurst. And in 1987, Penhurst State School and Hospital were officially shut down two decades after the truth came out. I have never been shy about telling you lovely listeners my opinion on residual energy and echoes that linger in buildings, but I also believe that sometimes, even if you die at home, in your own bed, surrounded by family and finally safe having spent years trying to make it day to day, sometimes you go back, back to a place that chipped away at your soul so much that it left a piece behind. Here are some of the souls that are still stuck at Penhurst. The King is the nickname given to a particularly unfriendly ghost. It's believed he is the ghost of a maintenance man who worked at Penhurst during the 40s or 50s. He can be seen, heard, felt and even smelt in the boiler room in the basement of the Mayflower building. Cigar smoke is a common scent when he appears. If you're brave enough to venture down to the boiler room, you'll see many cigarettes on the floor. People present them as sort of a peace offering. They'll appease him for a moment or two, but his attitude towards visitors is said to change like the Irish weather. He may manifest himself as a shadow figure, but he has plenty of energy to touch or even choke people. And because of this sort of activity, investigators often label him as a poltergeist or demonic entity. He's also said to have a really creepy laugh. Is it weird that the laugh disturbs me more than anything else? If you're lucky, he'll answer all your questions. But if he tells you to leave, you leave. Some say a female spirit is stuck in the boiler room with him. Although not much is known about her, it does seem as though she is a benevolent spirit. She tries to warn people, telling them to run. Probably when the king isn't feeling up to visitors. He seems to like female visitors, but he obviously doesn't like her because he talks right through her. The Mayflower building is not only haunted by the king. The building has three floors and a basement, so there are bound to be spirits we don't even know about. On entering the building, you'll see plenty of satanic symbols all over the walls. According to the guides, it was common for people to break into the facility when it was left abandoned and perform rituals, which is fine. I mean... You do you, but I think they may have left some of their portals to hell open. People who have visited the Mayflower building have described having overwhelming feelings of dread and sadness. Investigative tools such as cameras and other paranormal equipment are known to malfunction in this building. As well as the noise of slamming doors, footsteps and the sounds of a person vomiting, there's a creepy music box music. The music seems to come from everywhere, but no one has been able to locate the music box itself. Disembodied voices telling people to go away or saying, I'll kill you, are regular here too. But then there are the frightened whispers of, we're upset, and of course, I'm scared, are frequent one-way conversations being had with no one and anyone who listens. Some buildings cannot be accessed simply because the construction is too dangerous, but there were investigations in the past. Shadow figures have been seen at the Quaker building 
including an apparition of a girl with long black hair and long dangly arms. Not creepy at all. But it's not just visual experiences at the Quaker building. People have been pushed and even had things thrown at them. It's said to be a demonic entity that causes these injuries, but I mean, what else would it be? Ghost hunters found good evidence at the Limerick building. Evidence including EVPs, apparitions, shadow people, and an occasional ghostly touch. People have reported seeing the apparition of a woman in an old-style nurse's uniform. Researchers also say you can capture EVP, EMF surges, and shadowy figures in many of the other buildings, especially the Philadelphia building. I realise we have come far, I really do. Yay, society, give yourself a pat on the back. And I know having a rant about it now won't change what happened back then, but I cannot get myself into the mindset of a person who would actually send a family member to that place. And it's not because today it looks creepy. I'm sure back in the day the place was state-of-the-art aesthetically. But the average age of a patient at Penhurst was 35, and the average time spent in Penhurst was 21 years. So if so many people spent so many years in this place and their family were actively visiting them, how did no one see it? Why were people so shocked by Bill Baldini's eye-opening exposure? Are we willing to admit that we left them there knowing that medical staff were drowning in a sea of too many patients and not enough beds? I hope the building is never demolished. And not so that the haunted house every Halloween can continue. I probably have an unpopular opinion on that use. But let it stand as a reminder that we need to do better than we're doing our best. What do you think of that story? That was a great story. It was intense. I didn't mean it. I don't know if you know, or if you could capture my essence of I annoyance. Got it. I got it. I picked up, picked up a smidgen of that in there, all right, Jim. Uh, there is absolutely no way in my mind that I would ever question that that place is haunted. But the floors, the ceilings, it's it, between the walls. The, like, there's so much pain and so much sadness, and there's only so much that the, the I don't know. Do you believe in souls or? Like I, I think people saw music, <laughs> but I think people have souls, and I think if you chip away at it for long enough, you lose part of it, and it just gets left somewhere. So even if you leave and you die somewhere else, but you have, I don't know, say unfinished business, are you lucky enough to haunt your own family, or do you get pulled back into this vortex of hell all over again? But what? it's just madness. Mm. Was this was this the premise or the basis for the asylum? series of American Horror American Story. Horror, yeah. yeah. Because some of the characters were, like when you were talking about the nurse in the uniform and stuff, I can't remember the woman that plays it, but she's really famous. Not for the life of me can I remember who you're talking about, but I do know who you you're knew, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I thought Penhurst was in Pennsylvania. So when it popped up in the episode of Stranger Things, I was like, Stranger Things is in Indiana and then mm. I was like, What's what's going on there? But I did go into the fandom of it and it's like no. Oh, because, uh what's his face is in Penhurst. Nancy Wheeler and yeah, they went to see your man Creed. Creed and yeah, and yeah, that reminded me of the scene where Jodie Foster walks down the corridor. Yeah, and it was it was a wall to the back of her and cages to the front. The mm. only difference that Jodie Foster had was there was a hardened, a bulletproof glass or perspex between her no bars, yeah, and uh, Hannibal Lecter. 
whereas it was bars uh, in thing, but it, it could very well have been the same set of cells. I think it was pretty much the same setup though, because I was looking at the Penhurst building and I thought it was going to be this big, majestic looking building, like Waverly Hills. That that mm. building was nearly done out like a bat wing. It was huge, but Penhurst just kept adding buildings on and adding buildings on and adding buildings on and the grounds are just humongous and it sounds like it should be like oh at capacity they had 7,000 people it wasn't big mad numbers like that it was it was in the 1500s to 2000s but it was only meant to hold about 500 patients and when you have a mix of people who have intellectual disabilities or mental disabilities or the criminally insane when you're mixing all of them in the same place like that I would not suggest that you go and watch the documentary it it, for me it was very disturbing there's patients there that are completely emaciated and I don't know why it bothers me more when it's kids it just seems like it's such an unnatural thing for kids to need food I just I can't get my head around that and the thought of somebody bringing in their six-month-old baby and then not visiting regularly to notice that these things are the walls are falling down around these people like in the in the 1800s and 1900s i can't, i would be like oh yeah well they just kind of had this society believed mm. that you just and then you let them you put them in a corner and you but not if not in this i know the 60s and 70s were a bit mad and stuff but like that these aren't up until you like i was born in 84 i was 87 when this place closed yeah so it's a bit mad. I, I, I just find it very difficult to get my head around mm. the idea of it. Mm. Have you got any people for me? Uh, I have a couple of people. Let's start with uh, the long-haired girl with the dangly arms. Yeah, I thought I just breezed past her. Uh, oh, just a quick one there. Just took in an L, quick Miley Kunis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the woman that is annoying the king. Ah, no, she's, ben- she's benevolent. She's nice. Yeah. We she's like annoying her. the king. The king doesn't like her. Oh, he's just... But she's he- benevolent to yes. living people. There's Kathy Bates. There you are now. Yeah. Kathy, welcome back. Because she talks very truer, but I'd say she gives him a good Yeah, that's stuff. because she's like, will you shut up? Stop. Pick up your ashes. Stop throwing your <laughs> cigars in the ground. Don't pester that young child yes. on the tour. Yeah. And then the king, I nearly went with somebody else, but I sell on, have you ever seen, and this is this is pre-legal documentaries or pre-legal shows like Suits. Okay. Going back as far as Boston Legal. Oh, good lord. And a, and a good old... William Shatner. Yes. Smoking cigars, drinking yes. whiskey, giving hell. Yes. Also had mad cow disease in the end. Did he? Not really, but he thought he did. Oh. Yeah. There you go. That's a really good lineup. Yeah. I would definitely watch that. William, I William Shatner, Kathy Bates, Shatner and Lady Gillis. Kathy Bates giving each other socks. Just like, just like this. Sorry, that's an Irish out. expression. Giving it socks is like when you're like, oh, what's it? How do you explain that in any other way other than an Irish Lots person? doing something with lots of enthusiasm. Yeah, like if you're if you're having a fight, like you're giving it socks, so the two of them are like well able to have an argument. Punching ferociously at one another. Yeah, I don't how like we say some of the weirdest stuff. My cousin lives over in Amsterdam, and when she came over with tea for everybody or coffee for everybody, she had a bunch of biscuits or something, and they were like, "Where did you get those biscuits?" And she was like, "Oh, they were in the press over there," and they were like, "What?" What's a press? And not for the life of her could she think of what the actual word was. The actual word is a press. Is it not a cupboard? The rest of the world is wrong. <laughs> a press is a cupboard. We like to say, you guys say airing cupboards, we say immersion. Airing press. Hot press. We call them hot press. You call them airing cupboards. Would you like to know the rabbit hole I fell down what? this week? Do you know the way sometimes when you watch a movie and you're like, uh, this is based in such and such, but I'm pretty sure that's Vancouver? 
Yeah. So I was trying to look up all the places that Penhurst has infiltrated my favourite movies and yeah. I, I only ended up with two before I fell down this rabbit hole. I don't know how, but I ended up on Bustle.com and I was looking at their 19 films that were panned when they first came out. I don't have 19 of them, I only have a few of them. But these are movies that actually flopped when they first came out. Okay, yeah, yeah, the first one I actually know that story. So the classic, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Tiny little inside bit here. Uh, my brother is named after George Bailey. Mm-hmm. We were obsessed with that movie. Uh, but apparently it didn't gain popularity until, now get this right, due to a clerical error, it fell into the public domain. So TV stations didn't have to pay distributor fees when they when they played it. And then out of nowhere, it was this big, absolute, massive hit. It was lukewarmly received and it flopped in the box office. And now it's, I, I can't not watch It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas time. The next one there is Godzilla. Apparently it confused American audiences and upset Chinese critics. Now there have been, I read there, I didn't realise there were so many, there have been 30 sequels to that movie. How how infamous. 30 sequels? 30 different types of movies. Who was he thinking? The Fast and the Furious? Groundhog Day, Stephen. Groundhog Day flopped. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was doing the thing you just did again. I know, I know, yeah. I know. Groundhog Day flopped. The Washington Post called it mediocre, saying Groundhog Day will never be designated as a national film treasure. I'm like, do you know what? You can shove your Washington Post. I love that movie. Listen, and I'm, Washington I'm, Post, you can leave Bill Murray alone now. Please. I'm the type of person that if I see Bill Murray in Ghostbusters for the first time ever, I find it very difficult to picture someone playing a different character. But this was literally like Bill Murray in Ghostbusters decided to be an anchorman because, you know, they've saved the whole of New York from all the ghosts and there was no more ghosts left. Uh, the Shining, Stephen. The Shining flopped. Yep. Flopped. Um, I didn't realise what Razzies were until today. They used to be called something else, but they're basically the complete opposite of what you want. Uh, it got two Razzie nominations the first year the awards Is were Is it like the Wooden Spoon Awards? What? You know the Wooden Spoon? That sounds like an Irish thing that you make up yeah. when there's a blackout. No, it's like... It's basically last place. And it's, it's, what is that? I've never heard that before. Oh, my dad used to come home with them all the time from football matches. <laughs> uh, the next one there is The Wizard of Oz. The New Republic said, As for the light touch of fantasy, it weighs like a pound of fruitcake soaking wet. And then a New Yorker labelled it a stinkeroo. Oh. A stinkeroo. There was a few, like Alien. Alien flopped. That's basically a cult classic, though. Yeah, that's, now. No, but, no, but this, this is what I'm trying to say is all of the stinkeroos, all of the now cult classics were initially stinkeroos. Yeah, pretty much. That was an interesting rabbit hole. I, it, it was it was very weird because there's been so many movies that I've watched where I'm kind of like, what, why, why would you record it somewhere else? And then I'm like, okay, because Vancouver is amazing. Mm-hmm. But that's, all, that's, that's everything that I have. We finish up there? Yep. Perfect. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions regarding this episode or any other episode, please feel free to DM us. Is that what, that can make that yes. a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. DM us on our uh, Instagram, or even if you just want to have a, a quick chat with us. Like we're really lovely people. You should come and talk. And, to and us. that's nice. <laughs> if you have any personal stories of your own or any recommendations, please send them to our email. It's what's the story ghost at gmail.com And those are all my words. Thanks, Jingle. Bye. Bye.